Well, we are working our way through the book of Philippians. Last week, we began, uh, we, we essentially got halfway through, and we began looking at chapter 3. We looked at verses 1 through 3. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 11. If you have a Bible with you, as always, I encourage you to open it up and follow along, not only as I read, but, but as we go through uh, this section of Philippians, uh, you'll want to follow along because we'll be looking at different um, uh, phrases and words and the way they're connected, and, and uh, you'll, you'll probably want to see that as we go along. If you don't have a Bible with you but would like to follow along, uh, you can find a Bible in the seat in front of you underneath, and you'll find our passage there on page 981. Before we read this, I just wanted to point out uh, that, you know, if you're, if you're used to reading Scripture, and especially if you're used to reading Paul's letters, you know that he is, maybe more than anyone else, theologically dense, that a lot of his letters are uh, really zero in on theology and on uh, tracing biblical themes, and, and it can be uh, somewhat difficult to understand, and, and sometimes you can even read that and wonder, what is Paul the man like? And I just encourage you this morning to, to focus on this passage, because this is a rare insight into Paul's heart and mind. It gives us insight into what Paul was thinking, not only before he was converted, but, but also now as a Christian. Uh, and so let's, uh, let's Look into that now. This is Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection." Of the dead. <clears throat> Paul begins this section in verse 4 by saying, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now that's a bit of a strange way to, to begin a, a passage. It's almost like you're 
dropped in the middle of something that he's already been saying, and in fact, you are. If we think back to last week's sermon, we remember that Judaizers, most likely, have infiltrated or in some way are influencing this church at Philippi. What are Judaizers? Judaizers, if you go to Acts chapter 15, verse 1, it says this, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, that is teaching Christians, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul, as you know, most of you, had been going around as a missionary and a church planter, and he'd been preaching to the Gentiles, primarily, this gospel of grace, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. These Judaizers came after Paul, and they infiltrated, we know, the the church of Galatia, but, but also were just kind of going all over the place and and probably here talking to this church in Philippi, and they were saying, look, Paul's right in a way. We are saved by faith in Jesus. There's no doubt about that. But we're also saved by circumcision according to the law of Moses. So good thing that you've trusted in Christ, you need that, but it's faith in Jesus plus circumcision. Now, again, as I mentioned last week, they weren't saying it's, it's faith in Jesus plus faith in Zeus or something like that. What they were advocating for is something that the Old Testament and that God in the Old Testament commanded of his people. Paul heard about this, and in his letter, in the passage that we looked at last week, kind of went ballistic in a way. He he wasn't speaking very kindly of these Judaizers. He said, look, I want you to beware of these people. And he named them three different names, all for the same group. He said, beware of the dogs, beware of the evildoers, and beware of the mutilators. Paul says to them, look, you don't need circumcision, as I mentioned last week, because in Christ you are the circumcision. And what he meant by that, as I mentioned last week, is is what he talks about in Colossians, that if you are in Christ by faith, then you have received what Christ won for you on the cross. He calls it the circumcision of Christ, where Christ on the cross was cut off, where he was uh, received the wrath of God, where he was set outside of the camp. And Paul says this, as the circumcision... You are true Christians. They're not. These Judaizers are not, but you are. And as true Christians, as followers, here are the characteristics that characterize you. And he listed three of them. You worship by the Spirit of God. You worship God not in your own strength, but because the Holy Spirit is empowering you to do so. You boast, yes, but you boast in Christ alone, not in yourself And lastly, he says, you put no confidence in the flesh. That was the the last characteristic of a true Christian. And that was where we ended last Sunday. And the question might be, what does it mean to put confidence in the flesh? If Paul is saying a true Christian puts no confidence in the flesh, what does he mean by that? Well, maybe the most simple way to put it 
is that if you are putting confidence in the flesh, whatever percentage that may be, what Paul is saying that if you do that, you are relying on you for salvation rather than Christ alone. You see, there are only two answers possible to the question, what are you relying upon for salvation? Whatever you may be into, whatever religion you may be following, whatever, uh, whatever uh, ways you're trying to better yourself in this life, there are myriad of ways, infinite ways practically, that you can rely on yourself for salvation. This was one of them. And what Paul is telling these Philippians and what he's telling us this morning is that if you trust in Jesus 99% of the way and you only trust in yourself 1% of the way, ultimately you're trusting in yourself for salvation. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's Christ alone. The Judaizers were adding one little thing, circumcision, and that according to the law of Moses. And that, one little thing for Paul, obliterated the gospel of grace. Now, a question could arise in your mind, and perhaps it arose in the minds of these Philippian Gentile Christians, which is, does Paul really know what he's talking about? Imagine you're these Gentile Philippian Christians. Remember, there were not even enough Jews living in Philippi to start a synagogue. That means there were less than 10 Jewish men living in the whole city. So we're talking about a city that is through and through Gentile. This man comes along, Paul, and, and he preaches a gospel of grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and they believe him. They trust him. The church has started. Now they've been going nicely for a while. They're a healthy church. And then these other guys come along, and they say, actually, Paul's wrong. You need to trust us. You need to be circumcised. If you're not circumcised, you're not going to be saved. Well, what, what experience do they have? They didn't grow up in Israel. They have no connection to those customs. They have no connection to those traditions. They've never been to the temple in Jerusalem. How do they know who's right? Well, Paul begins to answer that question this morning. Does Paul really have the credentials to speak this way? You know, it's, it's one thing for somebody who's just as poor as you are to say, you know, money's not all that important. Money, you know, it's not really, doesn't make you all that happy. It's not really worth pursuing. I mean, you could say, how do you know? <laughs> you don't have any. You're speaking out of ignorance. It's another thing for, you know, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or somebody to say, hey, listen, it's not worth it. Well, what, which is Paul? What category is he? I mean, is he just as ignorant as they are? Are these Judaizers, do they know what they're talking about? What Paul is saying here to them, saying to us this morning, is look, you can trust me. 
if there's anyone in this world who says that they have confidence in the flesh, that, that they have reason to have confidence, that, that they've done something that garners favor with God, if there's anyone who can say that, that you can find, I don't care where they are in this world, believe me, I have more reason to have confidence in the flesh. It's kind of like when I, you know, when I read this, it's like, I mean, Paul's literally saying, like, I don't even know, I haven't met any of these people. I haven't spoken to them personally. I don't know these Judaizers personally. I hear about them. But frankly, given my background, I don't need to know them. I know that I have more reason for confidence in the flesh. As I, as I read this, I thought of those of you who are Simpsons fans, you'll probably remember the, uh, the episode Homer at the Bat, uh, where Mr. Burns forms this team of ringers uh, for his softball team, and he gets all these major league players to play. And when they're all sign- signing up for their positions, Homer walks up to Daryl Strawberry. If you're like over 20, you know who Daryl Strawberry is probably. But Homer sees Daryl Strawberry, he says, hey, you're Daryl Strawberry, aren't you? And he says, yes. And he says, you play right field, don't you? Yes. He says, well, I play right field too. Are you better than me? And Daryl Strawberry says, well, I don't know you, but yes. <laughs> That's basically what, uh, what, what Paul is saying here. There's nobody that can beat me, Paul is saying, for having reason, for having confidence in the flesh. And he begins here in verses 5 and 6. He has a whole list of credentials here in 5 and 6. And he breaks these past credentials that he has, he breaks them down really into two categories. First, he lists maybe what we might call status. Status. Those are four things that he lists. And then he follows that up by talking about his, not only his status, but his strivings. Maybe you want to call it his heritage and his accomplishments. However you want to to put it, he he lists three things that are his strivings. So let's look first at his status. He says, look, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Paul's essentially golden platter of following God's law, according to the Hebrew custom, began at his birth. Paul was born into a family where his his parents made sure that he was circumcised. And not only that he was circumcised, but he was circumcised on the exact day that God prescribed, the eighth day. One scholar says this, The apostle, by beginning this way, has made for himself the proudest claim any Jew could make, namely that in strict conformity with the law, he was circumcised precisely on the right day, unlike Ishmael, for instance, who was circumcised when he was 13 years old, as were all of his descendants, and unlike the proselytes to Judaism. So if these Judaizers are coming in and and they're you know, born as a Gentile and were proselytes, became Jews, and then were circumcised, Paul already has them beaten. And he's begun with, he's only reached the first thing. He says, look, not only 
Not, not only was I circumcised, you, you say that we need to be circumcised according to the custom that Moses gave. Well, I've done that. Next. Next, I'm of the people of Israel. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. In other words, unlike, again, some of these Judaizers who were probably Gentiles converted to Judaism, Paul is saying, I've got you beat. I have you beat not only by my circumcision, which was on the precise day, but, but by my birth. I'm an Israelite by birth, not by conversion. My dad was a Jew, my mom was a Jew, and I have Abraham. I have his blood flowing through my veins. Not only that, but I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Israel, as you know, was divided into 12 tribes, but Benjamin's was special. Benjamin, you may recall, was the son, one of two, of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. Benjamin was the youngest. Benjamin, of, of all of Jacob's children, he was the only son born in the land of promise. The rest were born outside. Benjamin produced Israel's first king, Saul, after which, by the way, Saul, before he was Paul, was named. Benjamin, furthermore, was the only tribe, along with Judah, to remain loyal to King David after the divided kingdom. Benjamin's section, the allotted land given to the tribe of Benjamin, held within its borders Jerusalem and the temple. The tribe of Benjamin is the only one in the Old Testament singled out as loved by God. Well, that's the tribe Paul was from. A Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. There were Jews scattered throughout the world known as Hellenists, scattered throughout the Greek world, and, and those Jews grew up, typically speaking, in a house that was more influenced by the Greek culture around them than by the Hebrew culture. A lot of those Hellenist, Hellenistic Jews, they would grow up learning to read and write and speak primarily Greek. Paul, born in Tarsus, may have been thought to be a Hellenist, but what he's saying here is, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, that I was born into a house that was strict, that I grew up not being influenced by the Greek culture around me, not being primarily taught the Greek language, but being taught Hebrew. That's what I grew up learning. That's what my parents poured into me. I was taken to synagogues where the service was said in Hebrew. So that is Paul's status. That is his heritage. That's what he was given from birth. That's what he was given as a child. That's the home he grew up in. And just by looking at that, he already has these Judaizers beaten. But he's not even finished yet. It gets more impressive when you get to his strivings. He says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. Judaism had different sects. Pharisees were the strictest. 
The Pharisees were the law keepers. They were the ones who were trying their hardest to make Israel faithful to God's law. The Pharisees devoted themselves, all that they had, to to following the law perfectly. And, of course, when Jesus came on the scene, he accused them of hypocrisy, and that's when we think of Pharisee, I think normally we think, well, the Pharisees were bad. Why is Paul touting his Pharisaicalism? Well, he knows it's bad now, but he's talking to Judaizers who think that it's important to follow the law of Moses. And he's saying, look, if you want to follow the law of Moses, I was a Pharisee. Nobody followed Moses' law as strictly as I did. Not only did the Pharisees obey the law of Moses, they, they tried to obey all the oral law that, that the scribes kind of came up with. Not only that, they tried to build fences around the law. That's why, for instance, they said, hey, you're, you were not supposed to work on the Sabbath, so we're going to build fences around that law and say, you can only take so many steps, or you can only carry something so heavy, because in that way, we know that you cannot break this law. That's what the Pharisees were, and, and Paul says, I was a Pharisee in the book of Acts, He says, my father was a Pharisee. Not only was his father a a Jew, but his father poured into him how to be a good Pharisee. On top of that, he went and sat under and learned under the greatest of Pharisee teachers, Gamaliel. Not only that, he says, from my youth, I was completely sold out to being a Pharisee. What did that lead him to do? Well, he says, if you want to know how zealous I was, I was a persecutor of the church. In Scripture, zeal for God in the Old Testament, it equates not only to worshiping the Lord God alone and serving Him alone, but also in hating those things that go against the Lord. For hating the sin of this world and, and those Uh, things that are trying to pull away from the glory of God. And Paul says, look, I was a Pharisee so caught up in honoring the God of the Old Testament, in honoring the God that I was brought up to believe that I wanted to shut down and get rid of and end anything that took away from his glory. Some of my fellow Pharisees, yes, they were concerned to follow the law, but, but I went further than that. I made it my life's mission to stamp out this New Testament church of Jesus that I considered blasphemy against God. And so I hunted down Christians. I spent my entire 20s. I made it my life's goal that that if I accomplished anything, it would be to end the church. Acts 8.3 says Saul was ravaging the church. He was entering house after house. He was dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. In Galatians chapter 1, he says, you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and how I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And he says, because of all of my intense zealousness as to the law, as to righteousness based on the law, I was blameless. Paul, as a Pharisee, thought, hey, if anyone has a one-way ticket to heaven, it's me. As I 
strive and my zeal as I know better and better what it is that God requires, I'm blameless. He, he knew more than to, than to mean I'm sinless. He didn't mean that by blameless. What he meant is that I follow the law so strictly that there's no one who can accuse me of anything. That as fellow human beings look at me, they know that I follow it to the T, and therefore no one can blame me for being anything but a perfect follower of God. Friends, those are Paul's credentials. Uh, They are basically unassailable. If, If somebody here, if one of you came today thinking, I think I can get to heaven by what I've done for God, I want you to just compare yourself to Paul. Paul is saying, and as we'll see, all of that that I did was ultimately not enough to save me. Paul, when you combine his status and his striving, he's saying, I was essentially the best there ever was. You can't get more religious than I was. But you see, to put it another way, what Paul is essentially saying is that he was the epitome of self-righteousness. All that he was relying on was from him. He, by saying, I was the most this was essentially saying, I was the most self-righteous person in the world. That's who he was until the day that he met the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 7 and 8. But you see, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. If you've ever read the book of Acts, you know what happened to Paul when he met the Lord Jesus Christ. He was, in fact, on the road to Damascus. He was, he was on the road, on his way to kill and persecute Christians when the risen Lord Jesus Christ stopped him in his tracks. We see when we read Acts what happened kind of on the exterior, but we see here what happened in his heart and in his mind. He, we know from, from reading this that, that when he met the Lord Jesus Christ, that his heart and his mind were changed permanently. Paul says, look, all of those things that I had, all of it, my status and my striving, I took pride in those things. I looked at myself and I said, good job. I looked at my heritage. I looked at my brilliance. I looked at my learning. I looked at my accomplishments. I looked at my fervor. I looked at my law keeping and I said, if anyone's going to get to heaven, it's me. And then what he says is, but when I met the Lord Jesus, 
on the road to Damascus, his radiance completely eclipsed me. You know, when you go to a wedding, when the bridesmaids come down the aisle, you look at them and you say, wow, they look great. They're, the dresses are beautiful. They're, they're really, uh, really stunning. You think that until the bride comes down. And as soon as the bride enters, the bridesmaids are instantly eclipsed. Prior to meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul knew of him, and he hated him. But here, he speaks of the past and the present. He says, whatever gain I had, whatever gain I thought I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ when I met him. And then he says, Indeed, now I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So when he speaks here of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, he's not simply talking about knowing about him. He already knew about him. He thought he was a blasphemer. He's speaking here of knowing him, of knowing him intimately. Look at what he says here. He knows him now as my Lord. Paul speaks in his letters over and over again of Jesus, the Lord. This is the only time in all of his letters that he ever refers to Jesus as my Lord. See, we ask, well, isn't Jesus everybody's Lord? Maybe you don't ask that. In fact, he is. The Bible says that Jesus is Lord of all. So if you're sitting here today and you don't trust in Jesus, you don't really believe in Jesus, you maybe even dislike Jesus, I have to tell you that he is still your Lord. Whether you want him to be or not, he is. And what Scripture says is that one day... When he comes back, you will openly acknowledge that fact. I don't care if you've been dead for 2,000 years. Your body will rise, your soul will be reconnected to your body, and you will instantly bow the knee and proclaim him to be your Lord. But you see, un unless the Lord meets you in this life as he met Paul, you will refuse to acknowledge it until you acknowledge it on that day. But what, what Paul is saying is that if the Lord Jesus meets you beforehand, if he meets you as he met Paul on that day on the road to Damascus, and if he calls you to be his own as he did with Paul, then you will gladly say it now. And you will look forward to that day when you can say it to him face to face. You are my Lord. And if, like Paul, you can right now proclaim him to be Christ Jesus, my Lord, then it means that you have, as Paul did, 
gladly counted everything else in your life as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ as your Lord. In other words, if you have met the Lord Jesus Christ as Paul met him that day on the road to Damascus, then you have exchanged your self-righteousness for his. Notice, Paul says, not only that he counted everything as loss, he, he says, I have lost everything. I've lost everything that I had in this world, which is true. Paul lost his status. He lost his privilege. He, he lost his respectability. He lost his security. He lost his health. He lost his freedom. He's writing this from prison. And ultimately, for Christ's sake, he will lose his life. But Paul says it doesn't matter. Because even though in a vacuum those things are valuable in and of themselves, they cannot compare with the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. In fact, he says, compared with Christ, everything else in this world is rubbish. Dung. That's the word. Are they worthless in and of themselves? No. Put in their proper place, they can be very valuable. Obviously, I hope no husband in here thinks that their wife is dung. But you can't put her in the spot that only Christ deserves. In her place, she is valuable as can be. But if you try to swap her out with Christ, she is incomparable. Jesus says this, See, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has to go buy that field. Everything he had was valuable. He was able to sell it so that he could buy the field, but he bought the field and sold everything he had because of the treasure that he found in the field. Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had, all the other fine pearls that he had, to buy that one pearl of great price. Jesus says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. You know, if you're a high school or college student, if you're a young adult, you probably feel like the future's ahead of you. Like you kind of have the world on a platter in front of you. And that's pretty much what the world tells you. I mean, just watch commercials these days. You usually don't see anyone over 50. Commercials are, are geared towards the youth. 
That's what our society tells the young. If you're young, then, then yes, you, you, you have, this world is telling you, your whole life ahead of you. But, but what Jesus is issuing you this morning, what Paul is issuing you, is a challenge. Jesus is saying, but what is your soul worth? If someone came up to you today and said, look, I will give you the whole world. You can have all the money in the world, all the power in the world, all the pleasure in the world for the rest of your life and then go to hell when you die. Would you take the offer? And yet, how many of us forsake the Lord of salvation for far less than the whole world? Paul says, I want to be found in him, verse 9. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Paul is saying, look, don't you see there's a judgment day coming? When he says, I want to be found in Christ, that's what he's talking about. As a Christian, we are in Christ already. Paul talks about that many times, as, as I mentioned many sermons ago. Paul, is that's his favorite way to describe Christians, are we are in Christ. So Paul, when he says, I want to be found in him, he's not saying I'm not in Christ and sometimes I am in Christ and I'm trying to be found in him. I want to try to strive to be in him. No, he's in him now. But he's saying on that day, on that day when, when Christ returns to judge the world, I want to be found in him, not in myself. What does he mean? Well, notice here in verse 9, he speaks of two different kinds of righteousness. He, he makes that really clear. He, he speaks of essentially self-righteousness, which he qualifies in two ways, a righteousness of my own that comes by the law. He says, look, I don't want to be found in that kind of righteousness. When, when I go before the throne of God and the judgment seat of Christ, I don't want to be standing there with only my worthless record representing me. Now again, understand, this is Paul speaking. If anyone in the history of the world would have confidence to say, I do want my record representing me, it would be him. This is the point. And he's saying, I don't want it. Paul, with, with all of his status, with all of his striving, he is saying, my righteousness is worthless before the judgment seat of Christ. I want to be found in Christ alone, which is then what he describes as Christ righteousness. Self-righteousness, no. Christ righteousness, yes. And look at how he qualifies it in three ways. Now, the ESV has translated this first clause, that which comes through faith in Christ. That is, that is a, a, a translation that is, you, you can make from, from this Greek construction here. But there's another way that this can be translated, and I think that's actually what Paul is saying here. When he is describing the righteousness that he wants to be found in, I don't think he says that which comes through faith in Christ. I think he says that which comes through the faithfulness of Christ. 
What is he talking about? Well, we are saved by faith alone. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. That's true. But it isn't the faith that saves us. It's not our faith that saves us. If we go before God and say, look at my faith, it's not enough. Paul is saying, I don't want to be found in my self-righteousness, and I don't even want to be found boasting of the faith that I have. I want to be found covered in the faithfulness of Christ. Our faith connects us to Christ, and it is through his righteousness, what Luther called an alien righteousness. It is a righteousness that is given to us by faith, but it is a righteousness that is earned by Christ. When Christ came to earth, he was faithful. What Paul thought he was doing was being faithful. What he realized when he met Christ is everything I'm doing is is not only worthless, it's actually striving in the wrong direction. Because the more that I try to be righteous, the more debt I stack up. I need Christ who was faithful for me. Jesus was fully man and fully God, which is why Paul says the faithfulness of Christ is that which ultimately comes from God. The righteousness that God requires is the righteousness that God provides. It's his righteousness. That's why we can't stand before his judgment seat with any other righteousness. He requires his standard. And if we bring another standard, we're doomed. We need to say to him, give me the standard that you require. How do we obtain this righteousness? Not by works of our own, Paul says, but by faith, which is itself a gift of God. I talked about how Martin Luther called this an alien righteousness. Martin Luther was kind of like Paul before Paul came to know Christ. He was a fanatic, a a, a fanatic Catholic monk who tried so hard to be righteous by following the rules and regulations of the Roman Catholic Church at the time. And he would go to confession for hours and hours and hours and confess everything he thought he had done. He would, uh, and finally the, the, the priest that would listen to him would say, yeah, like, get out of here with this. I'm, I'm tired of listening to your confessions. And Luther would say, but I haven't even begun. Don't you realize how much I've failed? Luther says this. This is him. I'm quoting him here. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, he was a monk that followed all the rules. I felt that I was a sinner before God. I had an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteousness of God. I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. But at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely, the passive righteousness with which 
Merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. When I understood that, I felt that I was altogether born again, and I had entered paradise itself through open gates. He died for me. He made his righteousness mine and made my sin his own. And if he made my sin his own, then I do not have it anymore and I am free. Paul closes out by saying, I want to be found in him that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may, be, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. What Paul is essentially saying here is coming to Christ by faith is the beginning of the journey. He's saying, yes, I know Christ Jesus my Lord, but the longer I live, the more I ask God that by my experiences of living life as a Christian, I may come to know Christ better every day. One scholar puts it this way, Paul desires to know Christ personally as the resurrected, ever-living Lord of his life. He wishes to know him alive and creatively at work to save him from himself, to transform him from bad to good, to propel him forward toward a life of service. The power of the resurrected Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings are, thought to, are, are, are to be thought of not as two totally separate experiences, but as alternate aspects of the same experience. In Christ's suffering and death, the old humanity came to an end, and in his resurrection, a new humanity began. Paul enters into a deeper personal relationship with his Lord and thus becomes more like him every day, being continually conformed to Christ's death. He says, look, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Is Paul expressing uncertainty here? that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead? Sure sounds like it. But if he's expressing uncertainty, then it would contradict everything else he says about the certainty of the resurrection for the Christian. No, he's not expressing uncertainty. He's not expressing doubt. What he's saying is that while my resurrection from the dead is certain, the way or the route by which I reach it is unclear. Remember, he's in prison. He doesn't know if he's going to be executed. He doesn't know if he's going to be set free. He doesn't know if he's going to die an old man in his bed after 40 more years of service, or he doesn't know if he's going to be beheaded next month as a martyr. He doesn't know if he's going to be alive when Christ returns. He's not sure when it will happen or how it will happen, but he knows for sure that it will happen. What are you relying on for salvation today? Because ultimately there are only one of two answers. You're either relying on yourself or you're relying on Jesus. If you rely on yourself, if you rely on your self-righteousness, then you have no chance before the judgment seat of God. If Paul had no chance, you have less than no chance. 
But if you rely on Jesus, if you rely on his righteousness alone, then you not only have a chance, you have a certainty. Whether you die as a martyr, whether you die at a ripe old age in your bed, or whether you're alive when he returns again. If you rely on Christ, then one day you will hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Lord, we so are so thankful for this passage because it reminds us of what we need to do, that we need to trust in Christ alone. We're thankful for the life and the status and the privilege and the strivings that you gave to Paul so that he could tell us it's not worth it. Lord, help us to not to strive after anything else in this world, but to consider the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord far greater than anything else. We pray this in his name. Amen.